It's a Wednesday on Today in Ohio, and we've got a lot of news to talk about. This is the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Courtney Astolfi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin. Courtney, you're doing the full five days this week. That might be your first, right? Yeah, I think so. Let's hope I, uh, I, I do well. <laughs> you're not an L.A. woman, but I think the listeners like you we get some nice notes. Let's begin. How does Cleveland compare to other Ohio cities in refunding large amounts of income taxes collected from people who work from home, not in the cities in 2021? Laura, I'm told this was your idea for a story. I love this story and we're all (laughs) most of us affected by this. Yes, because I am still waiting for my refund from Cleveland. But uh, Columbus, Cincinnati, even Akron are doing way better than Cleveland is. So far, Cleveland's paid out about 1,260 of 5,000 individual tax refund requests for this year that were filed by April. Both Cincinnati and Columbus said late last week they'd sent money back to more than 6,000 taxpayers who requested. Akron's almost finished with their 3,500 requests. So let's think about those numbers for just a second. They're doing like five times better than Cleveland in the number that they're processing. This is all because of the COVID pandemic. It led to working from home instead of commuting to big cities. The short-term rules limited the refunds in 2020. Those expired. So if cities withheld money from you uh, in 2021 when you were not working in there, you can request it back and they've got to give it to them. But Cleveland's only 25% through its individual tax refund request. You know, if Cleveland isn't operating in good faith, and there's evidence it's not, that you're trying to hold on to the money as long as possible to get interest on it, if they're not operating in good faith, I I wouldn't be surprised to see a lawyer file a class action suit because you're talking about millions of dollars that probably, and the interest on that would be quite a bit. So it would be a big payday if they were to win. And I think I hear from a lot of angry taxpayers that are saying, this is my money. The ones I feel worst for are the ones that were required to pay their home cities by the April date Mm -hmm. and and still are short the stuff that was collected. So they're out a lot of cash in the interim. And for people living on on tight incomes, that's a hardship. Cleveland should move quickly. I did that. So I am out. I'm waiting for that money to come back in. But I think that's why some people didn't do it because they didn't want to be waiting and they didn't want to be out and they weren't totally sure because think about it only 5,000 requests that's pretty low I mean Columbus has I think um, 12 about 12,000 and Cincinnati said they were 90% done and they've done 6,400 so those two cities have way more I mean Columbus is a lot bigger but still 5,000 requests is not a lot it's like Cleveland from the beginning was like don't do it you don't want to do it it's going to be a pain the, the danger of not doing it is if your home city finds out that you worked 100% of your time there, they're going to want the money. I don't know how they'd find out, but if they did, they would want the money that, that you're not seeking back from Cleveland. We ought to have one system. This is, it's silly that we have this these multiple ridiculous. systems. Because yeah. if you live in the suburbs, you're largely paying Rita. And then you got Cleveland with the Central Collection Agency, and they don't talk to each other. For people that worked in a RETA community and live in a RETA community, it was very simple, I'm told. You send in your paperwork, RETA handled the whole thing, you got your money back in short order, and and they paid the right cities. 
just to be clear, I feel like so many people are confused about income tax. They're like, what is this Rita thing that I have to pay? It is your home city that is charging you. It's just Rita, the Regional Income Tax Authority, is the outside agency they pay to handle all of the mechanisms because it's a pain in the butt, right? So, so all these communities join together to create Rita and to do the hard work. But yeah, it is, I think, confusing for a lot of people. And when you're sitting there waiting for months and months and months, it's discouraging. I mean, it, it's maddening, actually. And it may be something that results in a civil suit. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've talked repeatedly, if you are a regular listener to this podcast, about the Cuyahoga County Council's $66 million in slush funds. But reporter Caitlin Durbin has tapped into a whole new angle, raising questions about the transparency of these things. Courtney, what is it? Yeah, so we see it, actually stimu- stimulus reporter Lucas Dupriel. Oh, I'm sorry, story. I said Caitlin. That's right, it was <laughs> Lucas Dupriel that did it. Really did it. Yeah, so, you know, Lucas found that this this idea to give each council member $6 million to kind of spend as they see fit in their district, it's still subject to a full council vote, but we've, we've gone over this ad nauseum, right? But this process means that every council member has their own way of determining, evaluating, vetting, and deciding what ARPA pitches they want to put forth and actually assign the money to so as as they go through this decision making process everybody's doing it differently when they're when they're deciding on which arpa proposals to award money to so in some council districts we have like it it resembles a, a standard government kind of request for proposal process there's a scoring committee and there's a little bit more objective criteria to determine where to sink the money in but then other council members are just pretty much going to the mayors in their home districts and saying, what do you want? And, and doing the evaluation process from there. And still we have a handful of other of council's 11 members who didn't respond to Lucas's calls. It doesn't appear that their processes are available anywhere out in the public sphere. So we don't know how they're making this decision about this money that, that comprises about one quarter of the county's ARPA funds. Yeah, that This gets at the heart of what this debate has been about. These slush funds have turned the ward council people into the kind of council people Cleveland has, which is not what the government is. They're running around creating their own little fiefdoms, and each has a separate system for spending money. That's not what the county government was supposed to be. The executive is supposed to run things. He's supposed to oversee spending programs. These folks are not, and the fact that they're all doing it differently proves it. Eugene Kramer has written an op-ed for us talking about how this is so seriously against what the government's supposed to be. Laura, you heard from another framer and Marty Zanotti saying, hey, I want to be heard too. This isn't what we wanted to do. <laughs> he was kind of like, uh, yeah, regular shenanigans because it's been so long since I talked to him. I talked to him regularly regularly when the reform was happening, but it's like, I feel like it's back in the news all the time because we're asking, is this what you intended? This is We voted for a charter with a new form of government, and this is not what I think voters no. voted and for. And look, the and- county government ran, I wouldn't say it ran right, but it ran largely according to the dictates of the charter until Marty Sweeney joined county council, the former city council president. That's a really, and since really he's, interesting But, but since he's arrived, 
they're converting it into the city government style, and we don't need that. Everybody who lives outside of Cleveland lives in a municipality. They have their city councils and their mayors. That was never what this was supposed to be. But these folks are running around rolling out the cash like they're big spenders, not what we talked about. Courtney, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you talk about this this potential for impropriety or political influence going to council members. But, but, but Lucas reports that it also has caused just like functional on the ground issues. So like, like if there's, so for example, the rape crisis center saw it money from one pool of county ARPA funds, and then to maybe get a bite at this pie of, of the slush funds from the individual council members, organizations have to submit and apply to different folks. There's different deadlines. I think it's functionally confusing to let the best ideas rise to the top if there's a whole bunch of places, nonprofits and other community groups have to go to to solicit money for for what could be really good programs for the community. We just need some good faith candidates to start running for these county council jobs because what we have, they're they're thwarting the will of the people. They're doing what the gerrymandering commission did, thwarting the will of the people. It seems like everybody we elect, as soon as they get in there, they stop paying attention to what the dictates of the government are. Uh, Great story by Lucas. I imagine we'll have more stories about these slush funds because everything about them seems to be inappropriate and problematic. It's today in Ohio. Reporter Laura Hancock has a fascinating report about how Planned Parenthood and independent abortion clinics prepared for years for the Supreme Court ruling that just came down ending the recognition of a constitutional right to abortion. Lisa, this is my favorite story of the day yesterday. What have these groups been doing and for how long? So at least in here in Ohio, the Planned Parenthood of Greater Ohio has been working since 2017, getting ready for the eventuality that Roe v. Wade might be overturned. And that that year is significant because that's when Ohio legislators started to tighten and reduce access to abortion and abortion clinics. So uh, Planned Parenthood uh, CEO Iris Harvey says that she worked with other Planned Parenthood chapters and independent abortion clinics across the nation to determine what states might lose access based on regional patterns, you know, if abortion becomes illegal. They use this data to determine where to send Ohio women, you know, once the Roe v. Wade was overturned, which it is, and now an Ohio woman past six weeks of pregnancy cannot get an abortion in this state. So another thing they did, which is really cool, we had these at MD Anderson Cancer Center as well, they have a patient navigator. So they've created these positions to help women navigate confusing regulations, including what the wait periods are, what the state gestation limits might be, where it's legal, where to find the best place for treatment for each patient. They provide maps, they provide travel assistance, financial help if needed, and this all goes together to create what's called a medical passport, an actual document that these women can hold so they have all the information they need to get the treatment that they need. They also have an agreement with Lyft for uh, point-to-point service that's paid for by Planned Parenthood. And Iris Harvey said that there are so many heartbreaking stories out there. They had one recently where a woman's 14-year-old daughter was too far along for Ohio law, she didn't want to have to go out of state for treatment, but they they convinced her, you have to leave. You have no choices if you want an abortion. They all have, so had a homeless woman 
who was pregnant, called into their, you know, their office. And she was very traumatized, so traumatized. She says, I don't want to be a homeless woman with a baby. And uh, she, she wanted to actually step into traffic. That was her solution. But they managed to locate her and got her to a mental health crisis center. So yeah, they've been gearing up for the last five years. And it looks like their preparation was absolutely necessary. Laura has been doing a tremendous job covering the, the trends in abortion since before the ruling came down. This was a fully reported story. And and it, it, for Ohioans, there are going to be some choices. I don't know if you saw, but Michigan had a petition with all the signatures put in to guarantee a right to abortion in that state, which I thought was interesting because Nan Whaley has basically not jumped on this and and nobody has put forth anything yet in Ohio to gather the signatures. Everybody's saying, oh, this is so much work. Michigan's already done it. What's going on with Ohio? Uh, gerrymandering, a supermajority <laughs> in the legislature. I think those are two big reasons. Yeah, but this was a citizen-led petition to to do it. I I'm just I keep waiting for groups like Planned Parenthood and others to get that going, and then Nan Whaley, who's campaigning all over the state, could turn her campaign functions into signature gathering, so you could quickly put this together. I, Ohio just seems to have a lethargy. At least if Michigan does it, Ohioans will be able to have another state they can go to to get abortions. Anyway, check out Laura's story. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Where does the Ohio Department of Transportation believe electric vehicle charging stations should go in Ohio as part of $100 million in spending on electric vehicle infrastructure? Laura? So these are going to be on federal and state highways crisscrossing the state, and they're supposed to be strategically placed and, and accommodate this anticipated rise in electrical vehicle use. So we're talking all the big ones, um, you know, 70, 71, 75, 76, 77, 80, and 90, which of course is the turnpike, and some Ohio routes like 13, 23, 30, and 33. They already have 12 charging sites with at least uh, – four fast chargers. These are 150 kilowatts. And then they'll add 30 more in their first two phases and then more in the future. And then each of these chargers provides about 60 to 80 miles per 20 minute session. So I know we've talked on this podcast before about like sitting and waiting for how long, but I guess, I mean, I guess it would take you about an hour to fill up what you could do in five minutes of gas. Yeah, <laughs> I, and right? everybody keeps promising this is going to get faster, and I'm sure that it will. We were talking the other day about truck stops because truckers are allowed mm-hmm. to drive for so many hours a day, and then they have to take breaks. So truck stops could easily fit that, right? You, especially if trucks end up having multiple batteries that need charging. They drive for their requisite, whatever, 10 hours. Then they go into the mm-hmm. truck stop where they have to take a break for four hours. They recharge. I, I just wonder whether there's a whole cultural phenomenon coming here where these charging stations become entertainment complexes. If I have to stop and wait right. for an hour, you know, a McDonald's isn't going to do it, right? So you're gonna you're gonna need like the trampoline park for your kids and <laughs> and to get their energy out for road trips. You're gonna have people captive, and so do you start to see a movement to put casinos in these places or some kind of other recreation? It doesn't sound like Ohio is contemplating that as it cites these no. things, but but 
These are going to go to retail outlets. So it's third-party operators. This is not just going to go at the, I'm sure they'll be at the um, toll pl the plazas, you know, that they already have on the turnpike. That would make a lot of sense. But these could be places like 7-Eleven, Sheets, or Walmart. I mean, you could put them in your Costco, right? And have people shop while they wait. So I think it'll be up to these third-party operators to come up with something that makes their charging station better than other charging stations. And they're going to cost about 700000 to $1 million just for the charging station, uh, depending on the location. But I really like that I thought about trampoline parks and you thought about gambling. Not yet. So that shows us <laughs> Except that I don't, where, I don't jump on trampolines and I don't gamble. So I, you know, I do think it'll be interesting 10 years from now to see what kind of revolution this has for people on long-term trips uh that yeah. clearly will change things and there's always a profit in getting people as your hostage and the goal is to install 500,000 of these across the country by 2030 which is not that far in the future so you're right and i think we've talked about it on this podcast before but at some point is there like a battery exchange i don't know like propane or is that yeah, that's too to, hard to, to me that's finesse. the answer you pull in you pull your battery out you put it you know put it in the charger take another battery and go uh, you'd have to have uniformity of batteries but that seems like that would be the most convenient we'll see you're listening to today in ohio how is Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb proposing to break up stimulus dollars the city received into specific causes? And Courtney, I got to say, Cleveland seems like it's doing everything right the way the county seems to be doing everything wrong. Maybe that's because Marty Sweeney is no longer in the city government and he's over at the county government. What do you think? I don't know. We're, we're seeing we're definitely seeing some differences, though, between the county and city's processes. Right. So over at City Hall, uh, you know, we have the mayor working on his own ideas. We've got council working on their own ideas. We'll have to see how they mesh and come together in the two branches um, arrive at a final plan. But but what we got yesterday was some clarity from Mayor Bibb about how he's eyeing this entire pot of $512 million in the city's ARPA funds. And, you know, so he put out this plan. It, it comprises most of that money, um, about $460 million of the total pot. But what he did was break down how much in dollar amounts he wants to put to different priority areas he's identified as important uses for this money. So we don't have any specific projects. He didn't give us any specifics yesterday, but he did attach dollar figures to these broad categories. So what we learned yesterday is the biggest category is Bib wants to put about $195 million of the total pot towards housing for all and inclusive recovery. I'm not quite sure what all kinds of projects inclusive recovery would entail. It's a little bit of a squishy category, but we'll have to see where he goes with this. There's also money that he's put down. Um, he wants potentially $50 million to modernize the operations of city government. We know City Hall runs on a lot of paper and outdated processes there. Uh, he wants $30 million for public safety, and it sounds like that would be on top of about $23 million in public safety council already appropriated last year. So potentially a $50 million total public safety price tag. He wants to put another $5 million towards closing the digital divide, bringing up that total allocation to about $25 million. And then I think it's worth noting there's a handful of other categories in there, but He's looking to set aside $5 million for this concept of participatory budgeting, which we've heard about a little bit on and off as part of this ARPA conversation has unfolded. So we've got some general understanding of where he's looking to sink funds. 
but no specifics yet. But this is an interesting road. Yeah, the the difference is he's got big thoughts, and the participatory budgeting is important because it brings people into the government process. You might be able to to attract future leaders into government if they get to think about how to spend money. That's what the one of the purposes of that is. Um, he has a big block of money going into budget stabilization. That's the money he should be sending to us for our income tax uh, refunds, right? <laughs> Where is it? I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure how that works. But the, the I do want to point something out about that budget stabilization number. They put 108 million towards budget stabilization last year. So I think he's essentially saying that we've kind of maxed out our revenue recovery, and we're not going to put any more money into that this year. I could be wrong there, but that seems to be what they're telling us. And that's interesting. I wonder if they're not projecting any declines in revenues this year where there would be a need for it, or they're just not worried about that potential need. This guy's six months into his run as mayor, and he seems like he's been very, very diligent in the way he's operated. This is a, as good a plan as the slush funds at the county are a bad plan. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, you get the wackiest story of the day. How does a Cleveland company want to use COVID stimulus dollars and mushrooms for constructing houses? Well, and it has a slush fund component to it, too. So, um, yeah, there's a coalition of Cleveland area environmental groups, including Concerned Citizens Organized Against Lead, the Black Environmental Leaders Association, and MyGrowConnect, also Red House Studio Architecture Firm, which was established by Christopher Moore. Moore is seeking $661,000 in ARPA funds for a million-dollar project that would build a demonstration home that's made from bricks not quite mushrooms but sort of so what they do is they take demolition rubble material so concrete wood sheetrock or whatever that is all mulched it's treated with a fungus that transforms this debris into mycelium which is the underground connection of fibers that connect mushrooms if you've ever seen a mushroom fairy ring you know what i'm talking about um the these are compressed into bricks and some of these bricks are much better in stress tests than concrete. So this is still kind of a small, you know, a small thing. They want some of County Councilman Dale Miller's $6 million slush fund to do this. So they've applied for that money. Um, they said that this could work with ongoing other ARPA projects to demolish blighted buildings because then that would become material to make more of these mushroom bricks. So yeah, pretty interesting. And uh, Moore, the head of Red House, the architecture firm, he's says several buildings in Namibia have been built, but they've been raised because they're doing stress tests. And so they want to, you know, uh, expand their facility in Cleveland to, to make these bricks. Yeah, it's, a, it's just one of those you read it and you think, huh, who would have come up with that idea? But it's an interesting idea. And if the bricks really are that much more durable than making them out of concrete, and we know the energy consumption of making concrete is out of this world. So if you could come up with a way of building bricks without squandering all that energy that's a win i just and getting rid of mounds of you know construction rubble too right which we have no end of i guess the question is can you do it at scale but we'll have to we'll have to see you're listening to today in ohio viral story broke last night with the cleveland angle a longtime curator for the rock hall foundation in new york was accused of a pretty serious crime involving don henley and the eagles laura what's it all all about 
Yeah, this seems crazy, but this is Craig Inciardi. He's a curator and the director of acquisitions for the Hall of Fame Foundation. That's the one that's based in New York. And he's one of three defendants charged in a conspiracy involving these handwritten lyrics to multiple hits by the Eagles. There's two other people that are accused of possessing these notes in the lyrics, including Blockbuster Hotel California album hits like Life in the Fast Lane and New Kid in Town. The lyrics are valued at more than a million dollars. And of course, the attorneys for these folks say they are not guilty and uh, that there's no criminality. They're going to fight the charges. But it's weird about how they these came to be. These are not accused of being sold for the stolen from the Rock Hall, but like Way back in the 1970s, the author who was hired to write a biography of the band apparently stole the manuscripts. Yeah, I, it is important to point out. He's not accused of stealing anything from the Rock Hall, but he right. has been very active in the Rock Hall. He's part of the Beatles exhibit that's there now that a lot of people are raving about that I was underwhelmed by. But, so you, if you're at the Rock Hall, you got to be thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> right. Was there stuff there that you need to go check the inventory? Or, I think Lisa pointed out, is some of the stuff at the Rock Hall purloined to be provided to the Rock Hall? So th- this raises a lot of questions that uh, I imagine they'll be analyzing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's email going back between the defendant and the person who claims he found this material discarded decades ago in a dressing room backstage at an Eagles concert. And so I don't know if that's the defense exactly, but the prosecutors are saying that between 2012 and 2017, these defendants tried to get Don Henley to buy back the stolen manuscripts. They also wanted to peddle them to potential buyers through Christie's and Sotheby's auction houses. So this wasn't just like, hey, I just ended up with this. This is, sounds like a long-term conspiracy. And it, it does make you want to scratch your head. Um, how how does this happen? Well, the sleazy thing is when uh, one of the members of the Eagles died, they changed their story and said, oh, oh, he gave them to us because there was nobody then that could call them, <laughs> which I thought was... was uh, right. It says, alas, he's dead, and identifying him as the source would make this go away once and for all. Mike Norman. So, yeah, claim the dead guy. Mike Norman's our entertainment editor, and he was the rock writer back in the days before the Rock Hall opened and long after that. And as soon as he heard this name, he knew. He said, man, this is what, this might be the longest-serving employee of the foundation now. He's been around a long, long time. So it's he's had a great legacy, and if he's convicted here, it's all gone. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be doing some stories that look at what his impact has been on the Rock Hall. It's Today in Ohio. University hospitals seems always to be the Cleveland system that gets the credit for how it treats patients with compassion and humanity. It has a new award now to hang on the wall to prove why it's better than the other systems in Cleveland. Courtney, what is it? Yeah, really interesting. University Hospitals received the 2022 American Hospital Association Quest for Quality Prize, which recognizes leadership and innovation in improving quality, advancing health in communities. So it's kind of looking at, at those things that, that, that UH does have the reputation for. And, and this um, American Hospital Association committee that decided to give UH this award, they, they really praised UH for its data-driven improvements around quality of care and safety. Um, they liked UH's innovative strategies to deliver equitable care and, and look at equity as part of its, its services. And, and, and they also liked UH's strategies for sharing how they've improved their systems 
throughout its organization and to other healthcare organizations. It's odd. Ever since I came to town from from the very first day, you know, almost three decades ago now, people would say University Hospitals just treats people very well. Cleveland Clinic in certain areas are the best you can get for care. If you have a heart problem, you really want to go to the clinic. But just in terms of treating you like a person, they've always gotten that uh, that street cred. And it's interesting that they're still getting it. Yeah. And, you know, so if they've had that longtime kind of reputation, you know, the current CEO, Dr. Cliff Majerian, He's saying, but we've been building on that. The last couple years, he described UH as going through a cultural journey to really kind of zero in on some of these things that the association praised them for. So I, I think that their angle is they're they're looking to build upon and improve that reputation and, and have been. I would think that Metro Health has probably moved up on the scale under Akram Boutros. He's a guy that's very much focused on the patient experience. But it takes a while to build those reputations, as University Hospital knows. Good, good for university hospitals to get some recognition. It's today in Ohio. This will be a short one, Lisa. What is Lordstown Motors, the wannabe maker of electric trucks, saying about yet another leadership change that was announced this week? And you know I can be short, so here we go. <laughs> um, company president Edward Hightower has now become the CEO of Lordstown, uh, Lordstown Motors, Former CEO Dan Ninavaji will be executive chairman after serving just 10 months as CEO. Um, he guided that company, though, through a deal with the Taiwan-based Foxconn to buy that former GM plant that is cranking out endurance electric trucks. Uh, there's no been real no comment on the role change, but Ninavaji released a statement that says Hightower is the best person to lead the company. He has 30 years experience in engineering and product development at GM, BMW, and Ford. They also named three new executives, uh, two of them women, um, and all of them have a long history in the automotive uh, industry. You would think that they would be aiming at some point to have some stability at the top. There's been a lot of volatility. This was a pretty big yeah. set of changes, but we'll see. We'll still see if they'll be viable or if they'll actually produce a lot of trucks. Well, they're doing test trucks right now, but they say that the endurance commercial pickup truck production should start this fall. We've heard that before, but we'll see. We've heard it a lot before, and we've seen one on the White House lawn. It's Today in Ohio. That's it for a Wednesday. Good discussions today. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.